Some of you know that I was an airline pilot for eight years. Those of you who didn't know, that was my job for eight years as an airline pilot. And one of the things that that subjects you to as an airline pilot is it subjects you to like regular recurrent training. So every six months or 12 months, depending on if you're a first officer or a captain, you go back to the simulator for uh, basically to requalify for your job. Okay, every, every uh, six months, every 12 months, I was a first officer for eight years. So for every 12 months, I would go back to the simulator and I would have, it would it'd be a test that comprised of two parts. The first part was like an oral exam. So you'd sit across the table from somebody and they would ask you questions. How many of you sounds like a good thing to do? It's like speed dating, sort of, not really. <laughs> that, no, it's not actually at all, at all. Um, but, but they would ask you questions, and this could go on for like two hours, not speed dating. Like two hours of questions they would ask you about every little intricacy of the airplane and every interest, intricacy of the job that you were working in. And so, uh, and then following this, so you get through the two-hour oral exam, you go to the simulator, and nothing works. Nothing works. Like, so for you fly for two hours, and for two hours, engines are on fire, cabins on fire, smoke in the cockpit, severe turbulence, wind shear, wait, I mean, you're just, nothing works. Everything's broken, nothing works, the autopilot doesn't work, and, and it's just, you basically keep it, <laughs> you keep it upright and put it back on the, like, back on the ground. And so for two hours, and it's just this horribly intense thing, and your job sort of is on the line for it. And so every 12 months, I would come to this thing. And so for the weeks leading up to this, you can imagine, here I am, my source, of, uh, my source of income is on the line every 12 months. And so as you can imagine, I'm pretty nervous. And, and the, the weeks leading up to this were just horrible. Like I'm like scouring these books, like, and I like to read, but not like that. For every, like, what's the littlest thing that really doesn't matter, but I might get asked about, so I need to make sure I know it. And so for weeks, I'm just, like, obsessing and stressing out, and, and, and it's terrible. Like, does any, do any of you want to do that for your job? Any of you want to, like, re-qualify for your job like that, like, every 12 months? And if it doesn't go well, you're looking for a new job, and not only are you looking for a new job, but in the airline world, you're looking for a new job with a failure on your record, <laughs> which tells the next employer that you're probably not very good. It's a terribly stressful thing. So leading up to this was like a horribly stressful thing. And every time I would get there, I'd get done with the event and like sort of this like relief happens, right? Like, ah, oh, I passed, put my obligatory post on Facebook that I'm employed for another 12 months, right? And then after that happens, I'd, I'd catch my flight home I'd get home and promptly crash for, like, days. I'd just, like, I mean, hit the couch and, like, I'm going to be, like, a zombie for, like, five or six days, right? Like, I have this, like, just, you know, this adrenaline dump happens, right? And so you're, you're just sort of, you're out of commission, right? And, and many of you probably can maybe relate to this, not necessarily in, the, in this kind of a job thing, but those of you who are married, do you remember your wedding day? Do you remember all the planning that went up to your wedding day, and you get to that day, and you go through this event, and what happens right after you get married? <sighs> I remember that night, like, Sally's here, actually. 
Do you remember? Like, we have our, our reception, and our reception was from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. I mean, we were like old folks' hours. 6 p.m. to 9, this is the party of the century. On a Sunday night, everybody's going to work tomorrow. 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. At 8 o'clock, I'm sitting in a chair going, why won't these people go home? <laughs> I was done, right? I mean, I'm not the only one, right? Like, have you ever done that? Like, you're building up to some big event, big accomplishment, and the minute it happens, you think you're going to ride this, like, yes, this excitement, right? Those of you, maybe the one of you that's run a marathon in this room, right? Like, and you think, like, you're going to ride this high after that, and what happens? It just, right? There's this, like, exhaustion that sort of hits you, this, this thing, and it's interesting uh, it, the, uh, that psychologists actually have a name for this. It's called the letdown effect. Any of you ever heard that? The letdown effect. It's a real thing. Like psychologists write about this. And so you complete this high-level thing, and afterwards you have this sort of a- adrenaline dump. And what happens often is that you end up sick. Like that your immune system comes down, and you end up sick after an event, like, it's, it, there was a guy uh, that I, there's a pastor in, in Denver, I heard him talk about this one time, and he said he would get to the end of something, and then the week after school was over, like finals, right? The week after finals are over, sick. Uh, he couldn't figure it out, and eventually they were like, hey, man, like, you're running so high that when you stop, you're just going to get sick. Your immune system isn't there. It's the letdown effect. You, any of you have that experience? Any of you, like, you finished finals, right? You've had that experience, and you're just like, right? Go, do you go home and get sick every time? You're like, what the heck happened? <laughs> Lucky it's, it waited till after finals, yeah. But the, why am I telling you about this? Like, why am I talking about this letdown effect, this psychological thing? Why am I talking about this? Well, last week we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, Right? We have this giant celebration. It's a great thing. We're all excited. We're all happy, right? We're yes, Jesus is raised from the dead. And there's a lot of planning, right? How many of you had a lot of planning? You, those of you who have kids. How many egg, like you, you bought eggs and you, you had candy and you bought like nobody uses that green grass for anything, right? Except for Easter baskets like that or purple grass. Now I've seen or baskets, and we plan our meals, and we're going to have family over, and this is going to be a big thing, and I'm going to see that guy I don't care about in my family. He's always late, and he's annoying and obnoxious, right? And I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be happy this year when I see him, right? You, you have all these plans leading up to this, this day. There's all this stuff, all this emotion. If you come from like a, a traditional church background, you've gone through like all of the Lent season. And then you go through Maundy Thursday service, and then you go through, like, Good Friday, and then, like, depending on the tradition, you might go through Holy Saturday, right? And you have all of these things, and you show up, and you have this Easter blowout, and then what happens? Monday, you're like, did anything of value happen? Did we really do anything? Like, some of you this past week on Monday, you might have gone, does this matter at all? Like, for my ongoing life, does this matter at all? We just talked about a dead dude being made alive again. Does this actually matter for me on Monday? Does it matter for me on Tuesday? Or the rest of the week? Does this matter? Or is it just a once a year reason to, like, gorge yourself on candy? I'm sorry. For those of you who have kids and took home 200 eggs from our Easter egg hunt, Pete 
Harry sent me a picture of, of the bag of candy that was insane. Right? Like, is that what this is about? Is it a once-a-year time to go, let's just remember this is part of the church calendar. We're doing this thing. Or is there something else? Do you feel any of that? Is that, like, is that how you feel? Do you wonder right now? Are you sitting here going, I'm not really sure what to do now? And as I went through this week and I was preparing for this week, next week we're starting a series along with uh, 11 other churches in town. We're going to preach the same sermon series. But this week I was like, so Easter's over, now what? Like, what do we talk about today? I'm going to stand up here and talk, and there's got to be a reason that I'm talking today. What are we talking about today? And I really just felt like, man, there's, there's got to be some you know, clear next step, what happens? And so I sit down with the Bible and I start reading through the accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These accounts like after the resurrection happens, right? Jesus is alive. And I read from there to the end. And if you know the, your Bible at all, you have like, usually it's like a few verses or maybe a chapter, but there's not a lot. But I started to read through that and I read through all of them. And what I found was the same things happen all over the place, over and over and over and over again. The same phenomenon repeat themselves. And here's the other real kicker. The real kicker is I started to realize that these are probably real for some of us. Like that these, these three things, there's three things that happen again and again and again. These are probably real for you today, where you sit today, at least some of these. And so what I want to do is I want to unpack these elements just a little bit, as briefly as I can, uh, and consider a representative passage of Scripture, okay? So we're going to have a passage of Scripture. We're going to read the Bible. Recognize, I mean, that's a, that's a novel idea in the church, right? We're going to read the Bible. Uh, but recognize what I'm trying to show you in this passage happens a lot of times. Every passage from the resurrection until the end of the gospel accounts contains at least one, if not all of these elements. So we're going to read this passage, and I want to want to show you, turn to Luke 24. If you have a Bible, if you have your phone, you can pull it out on your phone. If you don't, there's Bibles here. If you don't have a Bible, we can make sure you get one. So you can turn there, or like everybody else, you're just staring at the screen waiting for it to come up, right? So here's what we read, beginning verse 33. Actually, let me give you just a little bit what, what's happening right before this. These two disciples are walking along. They're kind of contemplating this whole, Jesus was dead. Some people are saying he's alive. We don't really know. And Jesus walks up along these, alongside these guys, and they don't really recognize who he is. And so then he begins to tell them, you know, how, he, how the scriptures contain this prophecy about Jesus, and then they discover who he is at dinner. And here's what we read, verse 33. This is like as soon as they figure it out. It says, they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace be with you. So somehow he got there too. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I, myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. 
When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? You got any snacks? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. That's a nice snack. And he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Did you catch it? The three things? Of course not. I didn't tell you what they were. Some of you this week, as we consider this scripture, some of you this week are experiencing this idea of fear and doubt. Some of you left last week and you were like, I still don't know. It was a good job explaining and like, how can I know that this is true? But I leave this place and I say, I still don't know. And one of the things that shows up over and over and over again is fear and doubt. Some of you have had conversations with people who say, you know, I just can't believe because of doubt. I just can't believe. Look at verse 37. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Or Look down to verse 40. It says, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. While they still did not believe it. These are people who spent years with Jesus. They knew what he was after, sort of. They knew what he was about, sort of. They had some idea what was coming. Here he is, raised to life, standing in front of them, hands and feet, and it says they still didn't believe. Some of you have had encounters with people, and they said, well, you know, if I could actually see Jesus, then maybe I would believe. And I want you to understand that doubt is a real part of faith. These people who were supposed to be the ones that would believe anyway, any of you ever heard of Doubting Thomas? He's apparently not the worst. These people were supposed to know who he was, and yet in the presence of Jesus, they doubted. They doubted, and some of you, that's where you are today. We just had this whole celebration and, uh, about, about Jesus is raised from the dead, and you're kind of like, yeah, I want to believe, and there's part of me that believes, but there's still part of me that doubts. Apparently, you're in good company. The original disciples doubted that doubt is okay. Doubt is a part of belief. Doubt is a part of faith. Just because you struggle with doubt does not mean that you cannot have faith. You can believe and yet still have doubt. I wrote a sermon in Columbus one time I called, What Do You Do With Doubt? And I, uh, you know, in all my wisdom and preparation for the sermon... I turned to a resource that was a little bit questionable, Facebook, and I posted a question, and I just asked that question. I said, what do you do with doubt? And somebody who was a friend of mine uh, on Facebook who was a Christian said, you just don't doubt. That's what you do. You just don't doubt. And that's not helpful. You know, it's like people that come up to you, and you're like, I'm struggling with this thing, and they just say, stop it. 
Well, if I could, I would. Right? Just don't doubt. Not only is it not helpful, but what it told me is this person has never pressed their faith all the way to the edges, to the places where they don't understand, to the places where we don't have all the answers. Because if we're honest, if we're honest people, we all have these places in our faith where we get to the edge and we're like, I don't know. If I'm standing up here and completely honest with you, there are moments in my life where I'm like, what if this is all garbage? Like, what if I've staked my life on something that's not real? How big of a fool am I? And I go, oh yeah, but, but it's real. Right? But if we're honest, if we actually are honest with ourselves, we've worked our faith out to the places where we're like, I just don't know. I just don't know. We've worked our faith out to the places where we're, where we're scared. Because what if it isn't true? And if you never work your faith out to that point, how real is it? How much can you count on it? Because really, where do you need your faith? You need your faith when you're struggling, right? You desperately need faith when you're struggling, and that's not the only time. But if you've never pressed it out to the places where you're like, I just don't know the answer to that. I question how honest you're being about your faith. How serious are we taking it? And the intellectually dishonest thing to do is to just pretend like those places don't exist. Right? You all know people that are like that, right? Maybe some of us are like that, where we're like, I, I don't even want to go there because if I open that can of worms, I'm afraid I won't be able to get it closed again. And so I'm just going to pretend like, I, like it doesn't exist, like I have no struggle with faith. And if you only ever stay in the place where you don't have struggle, how can you know if what you believe is actually real? And wouldn't you want to know if what you believed was not real? Wouldn't you want to walk to that place where it's like, I don't know if I can trust this here, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go there anyway. And if it turns out it's not real, well, then you've saved yourself a lot of trouble, right? Saved yourself a lot of heartache, right? Friends, when you, when you, when you press your, your faith all the way to the places where you have doubts, what you eventually discover is that faith in Jesus can be trusted to its core. It can be trusted all the way to its core. But the only way you discover this is by walking into the places that you're scared of. Walking into the discussions that you're just, I don't have the answers to, and maybe somebody else has a better answer. And here's the way you handle that. You walk into that tension, and you stand there until you meet Jesus in the midst of it. We don't make a snap decision and say, well, Here's, an, here's a question that I don't have an answer to, so I'm going to give up belief. You walk into the doubt, and you stand there, and you say, I don't know. And Jesus, if you don't show up, I'm in trouble. That's what you do. You walk into the tension, and you stand in the tension until Jesus meets you in the midst of the tension. Billy Graham, you guys know Billy Graham? The guy just died recently, uh, but he had a failed revival meeting in Altoona. Anybody know that? Many of you know that story, right? He, he came to Altoona, and it was a flop. And he started going, maybe I'm not cut out for this. And then his co-worker, a guy by the name of Charles Templeton, who uh, many said was a better evangelist than Billy Graham, went to Princeton University and gave up his faith because he said he didn't really believe that it could actually work out. Didn't believe that it was actually true. And so he came back to Billy Graham and was like, hey, 
you know, I don't know if we can believe this stuff. And Billy Graham found himself in this crisis of faith. He's like, I have doubt about this thing, and I don't really know what to do with it. And uh, in his memoir, it says, he, he recounts the event. He went out to, to, this, uh, to this place near his, on his property and said, Oh God, there are many things in this book I do not understand. There are many problems with it for which I have no solution. There are many seeming contradictions. There are some areas in it that do not seem to correlate with modern science. I can't answer some of the philosophical and psychological questions Chuck and others are raising. And as he stood in this moment of tension, about ready to give up, the Holy Spirit fell on him and he fell to his knees. And he said, Father, I am going to accept this as thy word by faith. I'm going to allow faith to go beyond my intellectual questions and doubts, and I will believe this to be your inspired word. You can't say that, but that the Holy Spirit gives you the words to say that. He stood in this place of tension until God met him in the midst of it. And this experience changed his whole future. This is the late 40s. This experience, the very next day, he went out and preached, and 400 people gave their lives to Jesus. The very next day, those around him said that he preached with a new authority that had not previously been there. You can't just make this up. You can't pretend like the doubts don't exist. You have to walk through them. Everyone I know who is making a big impact in the world, everyone I know who's making a big impact in the world has come to a place where they have a crisis of faith. And they stand in the tension until Jesus meets them in it. And what you get out of that experience is you get power, you get authority, and you get the ability to walk uh, as, as a true ambassador to Christ. Because once you've met God in that place, nothing can shake that. You guys know people like that? So we see doubt following the resurrection. Another thing that shows up over and over and over again in following the resurrection should really come as no surprise. It's encounter with Jesus. Encounter with Jesus. If he's alive, he probably encounters people, right? Look at verse 36. It says, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Maybe you have had this kind of encounter. We have had these kinds of encounters in this room. There are people in this room who, even in the past week, can testify to encounters where God showed up, Jesus showed up in their midst and has spoken to them and has done things, right? Many of you, I, I mean, I've had conversations with you. You have experienced God and encountered God in a real way, even within the last week, right? There are many of you who, who would agree to that. I've had those conversations with you. But even in the past month, see, if Jesus is raised from the dead, then he ought to be appearing and he ought to be encountering people. If we live a faith that lacks encounter with Jesus... What about that is real? If he's alive, shouldn't he show up to people? I mean, it seems reasonable to me. I told this story last week, but I want to tell it again. Megan uh, Devine, those of you guys who know Megan, um, was sitting over here a couple weeks ago. And some of you know Megan has no sense of smell or had no sense of smell. And we prayed for Megan, and Jesus showed up, and she can smell things now. That's like, that's like real stuff, right? We're not trying to pretend like we, but we've had encounters with Jesus in this room. Beth, another story that, what, three weeks ago you were here in a wheelchair. She walks in today. She walks in today because people have been praying, right? 
We've had encounter on top of encounter on top of encounter with Jesus. And you ought to expect that. Some of you, though, you're in a place and you're like, if this is real, Jesus, I need, you, I need to encounter you. And if that's you, if that's where you are, you're like, you know, I don't want this to just be head faith. I want to encounter Jesus in a real way. Friend, I would ask, I would just invite you to ask him. It's not like Jesus, like the whole, after the resurrection, it's not like Jesus is like hiding himself. He just like shows up all over the place. He's like, just want you to know I'm alive. Just want you to know. Like he, he ran into these two dudes. They discovered who he was. What happens? They get up, they run off, they leave, and they go like, I'm going to go tell people. And Jesus gets there at the same time. I mean, it was like they were in the same Uber or something, Right? It's not like Jesus doesn't want you to encounter him, and it's not that he doesn't want to encounter you. If you need an encounter with Jesus, friends, ask for it. He loves to meet you. He loves to meet you. You won't be disappointed. Last thing, and I'm skipping a bunch of stuff here, so that shows you how long it would have been. Um, <laughs> the last thing that shows up over and over and over again following the resurrection is this phrase, go and tell. Go and tell. Over and over and over again. Some version of go and tell. There's a sending that happens. Look at verse 46. It says, he told them, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. Over and over and over. Go and tell. And what's implicit in this is they're about to leave and go tell. And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on a minute. You're going to need something. Hang tight. The Holy Spirit is coming. He actually restrains them from going and telling. But here's the thing. If this message is real, if this message is real, if Jesus was really raised from the dead, signaling the beginning of the resurrection over all time. If God is in, indeed again making all things new, then this is the best news ever. And if you fully understand what has happened in the resurrection of Jesus, try to shut your mouth. I mean, try. If you know that everything that you have ever experienced that has broken you is being made new now, Every horrible experience you've had, every way that people have treated you poorly, every dumb idea you ever had, every mistake you ever made, if that is all being redeemed and being made new, try to stop me from talking about it. If you really understand what this means, this means that there's healing for you. This means that there's wholeness for you. This means there's restoration of relationship for you. This means that your worst days are behind you and your best days are in front of you. That's what the resurrection means. And if this is true, and for those of you who have experienced that, try to keep you from talking about it. I mean, just try to keep you from talking about it. Those people who I know who have experienced the reality of the resurrection of Jesus, you can't shut them up. You just can't make them stop talking about it. Try to shut them up. But if that's not enough, Jesus goes, hey, you're going to go be a witness, so go and tell. As if they needed permission. As if they, they, they were going to tell anyway. 
But this is the call to everyone who follows Jesus, everyone who understands the resurrection. It says, go and tell. There's ascending as part. So as we experience the, the sort of the letdown after Easter, we go, but I have been sent. Megan has been sent. Every last one of you who says, I have experienced the resurrection and I understand that my, my life is being made new again, you have a calling to go and tell. Christ calls everyone who has experienced the resurrected Christ to go and tell. There's no class of Christians whose job it is to come and get fed. That doesn't exist in the Bible. Do you know that? Like, there's nobody who's like, well, you know, I'm, I'm one of those guys that gets to come and get fed. The rest of you got to go, go and tell. You come and get fed so that you can go and feed others. That's what this is for. We show up, we encourage one another, and then we go tell, right? Charles Spurgeon said this, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Ouch. I, I mean, yeah, Ouch. Every last one of us, once we've experienced the resurrection and surrendered our lives to Jesus, we're called to be missionaries. We're called to take the message out. And what I hear a lot, I hear, well, I don't have the gift of evangelism, right? Some of you maybe even have said that. I don't have the gift of evangelism. Well, if you don't have the gift of evangelism, try the gift of obedience, right? Obedience is Jesus' love language. Those who love me will obey my commands. It's why in all of our small groups, what we're doing is Discovery Bible Study, because what, what we discover is what God wants us to obey, and then we press out and obey it, because obedience is Jesus' love language. And the case is true here, right? Once we've experienced the resurrection of Jesus, what else am I going to do but tell other people? 